Hello, and welcome to episode 84 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. Uh, I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Uh, you can find Carl on Twitter also at Carl Bialik. Uh, and those regular listeners, you might have forgotten we existed or worried that we forgot we existed. Episode 83 was back in January. So so if you were to apply my ELO algorithm to our podcast, we'd actually lose 100 points. So this might be episode number negative 16 for those of you who are keeping score at home. But... We were already talking, we kept finding our conversation uh, veer back into tennis territory with the Tour Finals just wrapping up and a really fascinating season of tennis uh, in general closing down. Um, so we thought, why not? Episode 84, here we go. And uh, Carl, I think we mostly need to talk about the Tour Finals. I just watched the replay and, and charted the replay of the Team Medvedev final last night and I mean, the main takeaway for me was that it was just incredibly high-level tennis. Uh, it, it almost felt right to have a, an empty stadium and no line judges. It was just like this, almost like a lab experiment of, of really of really excellent performances on both sides of the court. I mean, what, do you have any any initial takeaways here from from our number three seed and our number four seed um, playing the, the last match of the year? Well, first, I think I want to acknowledge that a major reason we stopped on January 13th is that we knew we'd called everything that was going to happen in 2020, tennis and otherwise, and we were just going to, you know, pick it up at the end of the season to celebrate our successful predictions. And of course, we predicted an empty O2 for its its last year hosting the tour finals. Yeah, I I think it was great tennis. I actually think the level for both guys was even higher earlier in the tournament, including possibly the day before when they when they respectively knocked off the top two guys. So you really had the top four at the end of the season in the last weekend in this uh, perfect laboratory like setting. So it was it was a lot of great tennis right at the end. And Medvedev had this incredible run at the end of the season after a pretty ordinary lead into it. So it also felt appropriate that he pulled it out. Yeah, he was playing really incredible tennis this week. He went went five and zero, oh, and four of the matches were were pretty tough. Uh, unfortunately, I have to exclude the one against Schwartzman, which was a, a dead rubber. But in that final, uh, it, it ended up being pretty close, six four in the third set. Uh, Dominic team had a few kind of boneheaded mistakes. I, I can think of a couple of of short forehand that would be gimmies for most of us, even hackers like ourselves, uh, that he missed. But other than that, I mean, this this is Medvedev outplaying team, not team beating himself, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I, I just think both of them seemed either slightly fatigued or just coming back to earth a little bit from their incredible comeback wins the day before. But, uh, but no, Medvedev was was a deserving winner and your charting shows that they I think they they both hit about as many winners as unforced errors and considering that one of the reasons these two right now at least have emerged as as the next two after the big two or three depending on how you count is that their defense is about as incredible as their offense so it's not easy to hit a winner against either of them 
and yeah. and they did repeatedly and uh, you know in a, an extremely tough situation where they had to play more than five hours of tennis and barely 24 hours against the very best it, 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 I hadn't thought about this until you mentioned it now that one one theme that has recurred for the last well, more than a decade is that occasionally there will be upsets of, of Federer and Nadal Djokovic, but those players always lose their next matches. And people always speculate about whether that's because they're tired or I always come back with the numbers that, well, they were they didn't expect to make it to the next round, so they weren't favorites in the next round, even if they hadn't beaten Federer and Nadal or Djokovic to get there. But in this case, we have a situation where both players beat a member of the big three. So the, the usual story doesn't quite fit. But they, they certainly belonged there. You said they've emerged as the, the next two behind the, the top two or three. Do you think they are clearly a level above, I guess it's it's Zverev and Tsitsipas would be other people you might link with them, or maybe there's other people you're thinking of as well. But our, our team in Medvedev in a discrete level of their own? I was also thinking of Rublev, and I was also thinking of him partly because I was looking at your ELO ratings at the end of the season, uh, which have Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev team, Rublev, Zverev, and then Tsitsipas. I I think it's the, the tour finals, back when I was following tennis more vaguely, always carried this dim quality of like, oh, the winner is the is the tour champion. And I realized, oh, no, he's not number one. Oh, no, he's not even necessarily a slam champion or oh, he's not even someone who necessarily is going to do anything the following year. It just happens to be the last tournament with this funny format. And certainly in recent years, that's been the case. It's just like, this happens to be when we stop. So if we had happened to stop when Rublev won his fifth title of the year, or if we'd happened to stop when Zverev had won two straight in, two straight uh, tournaments in two weeks in Cologne, uh, we probably would have ranked them slightly differently. But this feels about right. Elo shows a little bit of separation here, so at least for a couple of months, we can we can accept this as the new normal. So, are are you that bullish on on Rublev? I mean, he. So Elo says what it says. I, I I agree. He's up there. That there's plenty of good math behind that. But on the other hand, a lot of his wins have have. I mean, he doesn't have. I don't think the track record against the top guys that that team in Medvedev and maybe even. Zverev and, and Tsitsipas do, but do you consider him as as their equal? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a classic split between Elo and the official rankings in that he's that high in Elo because he actually does have some good wins against the top guys. They just aren't late enough in big enough tournaments. So he's beaten team twice in the last month, but neither of those, those matches was very significant. And I think we've seen enough from, let's say, Zverev to say that, you know, consistently, Zverev was a different case because he was winning Masters at a really young age. But the idea of like, oh, you're just winning the wrong matches, you're not quite going far enough in the slams, like how much is that just sort of uh, bad luck and how much is it indicative of something more significant. I, I come down more on this is going to even out and Rublev is going to have some early losses in 500s next year and win a Masters or two. So that that's my, my hunch that this is just sort of a strange set of results coming at, at a strange period. And also when your ranking is lower, you get tougher matches earlier in tournaments, um, which which he will have less of with his better ranking next year. 
Yeah, that's certainly true. That will eventually catch up with the ELO. Uh, so we have, we have, uh, among others, we have two Russian guys and one German guy with a Russian name in Medvedev and Rublev and Zverev, and they're all vaguely the same age. We can think of them as the same generation. Uh, Medvedev is the one on top at the moment. Rublev is sort of the rising star, but Zverev was the one who got there first. So. Seeing what we've seen so far, whose career do you take? Hmm. So a big asterisk around Zverev is he's been accused by an ex of physical abuse, and he's denied it, and how that shakes out and what effect that has uh, on his, his eventual career is unknown. Uh, the accusation came out before the end of the year, and from a tennis point of view, he, he played well the rest of the year, um, while not really directly addressing the accusations. So we'll see if, if um, he, he is suspended or otherwise misses time, or if it, it affects his tennis, which is certainly not the most important part of that story. Medvedev can't play on clay right now bizarrely and that's like a big chunk of the season that that he just misses out on any wins and any shot at the french open where i think he's never won a match so i think rublev right now just because of how successful he was across surfaces but it's there's a lot of recency bias there i just am concerned that medvedev has had these these dips not not just on clay and like didn't back up um the 2009 us open final run but it's it's kind of pick them like i i think it's more important to say they're all pretty close at least in my book for for where they're heading than than to than to try to rank where they're heading what do you think well, I'm really interested by this, the general question of, of how to look at gaps in players' games. Um, and you point out that the big gap for Medvedev is he can't play on clay. Uh, with Zverev, it's sort of a different dimension in that he has some bizarre, almost yips-like issues with second serves these days. So that has definitely held him back against top players, sometimes against less than top players. And I don't think we have the same sort of concerns with Rublev. So maybe Rublev is is more of a complete player relative to the other two, but maybe he isn't quite as good at his peak. So he, he hasn't quite uh, achieved the same things that the other two have. But I never really know how to treat these gaps. Do we look at Zverev's second serve yips and say, this is something that's going to hold him back? Or do we look at it and say, this is something he can fix? I mean, Zverev is, a, is unambiguously a top 10, marginally top five, sometimes player with these problems. Imagine if he found the right coach and he could fix them. Or imagine if if Medvedev got the right coach or whatever, changed the right tactic and suddenly could play on clay. This idea that you can, that you can fill in a gap and improve your game uh, makes me think, at least on paper, the potential is for them to become a lot better than someone who's already complete. But while being complete is still only number seven in the world or something. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't know if, if there is a clear answer, if one or the other is better. And I'm, I certainly don't know how you, how you test it, really. I mean, it, it would be difficult enough to identify uh, which players 
had those gaps in the past. Um, it, it seems like players who, who have gaps still in their early 20s or beyond tend not to fix them. I mean, commentators like to talk about the opportunity to fix them, especially when they get a new coach. But most of the time, they don't. But on the other hand, the idea that Medvedev is going to play maybe eight to ten more French Opens in his career and not get better on clay, I have a tough time believing that. I mean, there, there's definitely some some room to grow. So, I mean, gun to my head, I'd probably take Medvedev just because he looked so good this past week. And, and we know his peak is not unplayable, but extremely good. And, and I do have reservations about the other two. But but like you say, it's a it, it's a pretty close call and it could make for some, some interesting rivalries for I mean, maybe another decade if we're lucky. And I've really come to come around to the idea that, that players can, can fix their, fill their gaps, fix their flaws later in, in their careers than, than I used to think, you know, Vavrinka filled a lot of gaps and, and went from being a, perennial fourth rounder at slams to winning three of them but also he rounded out his his surface playing and that was a big part of his blossoming in that he was kind of a clay specialist until maybe his mid-20s late 20s and then became about as big of a threat on hard courts and more recently although at a younger age Dominic team was pretty much a clay specialist and especially not useful on any kind of fast court and his last six finals are all hard courts. His last four are two tour finals and two slam finals, one of which he won all on hard courts. So he's he's a good example of, across the net for Medvedev of someone who can uh, round out his game and really go from being an afterthought in those tournaments to being consistently one of the, the biggest uh, contenders. Do you think those two are equivalent to a a related debate is: you know, Do you do you teach kids to play on clay, or do you teach them on a hard court? Because I, I, one side of the argument often goes that you learn to play on clay, you really learn how to play tennis, you learn tactics, you learn more than just serving serving forehand or whatever. Um, so, if you learn on clay, you can become a, a dangerous hard court player. If you learn on hard court, then maybe you become Sam Query. Uh, do you think that? that could be the the problem with Medvedev that maybe you can't take Medvedev's skill set and become successful on clay the way the team has gone the other direction yeah that's interesting I mean I think it's harder to come up with examples of people who have gone in the other direction I mean, maybe in the women's game Sharapova is one uh and I can also see Medvedev's game translating in that he's a grinder on the other hand he hits so flat that that surely doesn't help him and footing on clay is something that's that's vital and maybe harder to learn as well so yeah maybe it is it is harder to go in that direction there are players who are so good that they can play a hard court match on clay and still be the favorite against most opponents and maybe he's not that because he's just he's not going to like hit through clay that's not going to be his typical style yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, you can find examples on uh, for both sides there too. Because one player who comes to mind is is Andre Agassi, who I'm I'm assuming developed on on hard courts. I guess we probably we probably know that, but uh, but he turned into a, 
a dangerous clay court player. But then you have, I, I, you could name almost any Australian, it seems like. I'm thinking of, of Leighton Hewitt and now more recently Alex Dimanur, who, looking at their games, you'd think these are guys who should be great clay court players. And I don't think Hewitt ever had great results on clay. Um, he did okay at some Masters. but And I mean, Dimanur, obviously, the, the jury's still out on him. But there is that gap where we often think of clay as a certain set of, of skills and tactics, but like you say, it's so much about the footing. And if you maybe if you didn't grow up on that, it's going to be hard to, to make up the difference later on in your career. Uh, let's let's talk about the tactics a little bit in that final. And one thing in particular I, I wanted to ask you about is uh, midway through the match, maybe one third of the way through the match, the, the broadcast highlighted the fact that team was hitting way more backhand slices against Medvedev than he had in the semifinal. And at that point, it was working. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's always funny when you watch a match knowing the outcome and you hear the commentators explain why something is contributing to a win when you know that it's ultimately contributing to a loss. But in, in this case, in, maybe it was a smart tactic. That's part of what I, why I wanted to bring it up. Um, the reason why it fascinates me so much is when you think of Dominic Team, you think of that glorious one-handed backhand that he seemingly can hit for a winner from, from anywhere, uh, similarly to Wawrinka in that regard. And do you think it's worthwhile for him to sacrifice some of that offense in exchange for hitting so many more slices that I mean, they're defensive, but presumably they're part of a strategy to, to keep Medvedev a little more off balance or make him hit outside the, the zone he's comfortable hitting in? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's a whole different game to play Medvedev, and it, it it's a sensible tactic. He absorbs pace really well, and he, he can handle a slice. He can really handle any shot anywhere. He, no matter where he's standing when the ball's hit, which is part of what's fascinating about the Medvedev game. So I, I understand the the rationale behind it. I also think teams flat and topspin backhands, I think some of those down the line ones are pretty flat, are it's it's a beautiful looking shot that's a little overrated or at least overrated relative to his forehand. And he you know, I'd like to look at the match charting projects overall page for a player that aggregates the stats for all the matches he's played that have been charted. And in team's case, let's see, we've got 112 matches, pretty impressive. And he wins the rally or he hits forehands or at least topspin flat forehands. 54% of the ones that have been charted have been in points that are won, whereas 48% of the topspin or flat backhands were in, in points that he won. So there's a six point gap. Which I don't, I guess actually we could answer the question, but I think that's not like an unusual gap. Um, you know, it's a bigger gap than usual. So that, and I think a big reason is that he he hits it so aggressively. So he hits more errors than, than the typical player on his backhand, whereas he's very steady with the slice. Um, and it also... You know, the, the cross-court backhand slice is a favorite shot for many players, including Federer, for setting up a forehand on the next shot because it's hard to hit a really fast, sharply angled cross-court backhand off a, off a good slice. 
and teams forehand is so good. So I think there, there's some logic to it. I think there's also a lot of merit against Medvedev in changing things a lot and not letting him get comfortable because he can so quickly get comfortable. But that's a hunch. I haven't seen the data. And I also haven't seen the data on whether a slice really does set up a forehand more than a flat backhand. So please refute me if you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And that's despite the fact that you've suggested looking into that before. Um, that's probably I, not I a very good question. Well, no, it's... It, it, it's it, a lot of these tactical questions are things that I think you could extract an answer from from match charting data, and in some cases it's just difficult to set up or time consuming, or I just you know haven't done it. Um, this is a, a good time to to remind everyone that a, a very substantial amount of the match charting data is publicly available in in a machine readable format. So if you're the sort of person who likes digging into these questions, it's out there. Um, the, the answer to a lot of these questions is we don't know because, or my answer is we don't know because I haven't looked into it, but um, I would rather not have to say I so much. It would be great if more people would would look into this stuff, and and some have with some some profitable results, but we could always use more to, to answer some of these, especially the tactical questions. Uh, so, I mean, all that said, yeah, we don't know. I don't remember a lot of instances where the backhand slice set up m much of anything. It seemed to be more of a of a tactic to keep things neutral, or at least that's the way it worked out. And maybe the idea was eventually get him off balance, or or you'd wear down that that wing from Medvedev. Um, but it, it didn't seem like it was regularly producing a lot of opportunities for team. Uh, do you think that it would have it would have behooved him to be more aggressive because as we know Medvedev maybe more than anybody else on tour is happy to play these really long rallies on hard courts I mean, there were numerous 20 shot rallies I think there were a couple of 30 shot rallies in the match so team can't you can't beat Medvedev um, even team can't beat Medvedev by just wearing him down would it have been better to be more aggressive I know this is related to what I said before about opting for more aggressive backhand instead of the slice but in the, you you referred to keeping Medvedev off balance. Is one way to do that to try to keep points shorter and, and to go for more, even if the the percentage the percentages are a little bit less on some of the aggressive shots? Yeah, and I mean we're talking about such small margins that with a, f a few more of those forehands you were mentioning landing, he would have won in straight sets, and it it wouldn't you know it would be about how team dominated. I. I, I think being more aggressive against Medvedev can pay off. I think you can wear him down, but it probably needs to be five sets, not three. Uh, and it, it has to be one of a handful of people. Um, and maybe team isn't one of them, although he could be. I mean, it, it's a pretty incredible group of four that we had on the last weekend in terms of being able to uh, to stay at a really high level for a long rally and then do it over and over again for three hours, um, which is how it looks after they played three really close matches, but I think is like a fair assessment of their games, at least on hard courts. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the winner on Forcera numbers suggests team was moderately aggressive, but I think he hit 50 winners or something against Djokovic in a slightly longer match, and he hit 31 against Medvedev. He probably went for 50 or more against Medvedev and just missed a few more. He did seem a little fatigued to me in the third set, and uh, I wonder what you think if like his, even though it was 6-4, he didn't really have any chances on Medvedev serve. Did it look to you when you were charting like um, team ran out of gas a little bit and that his best chance was in the second? 
Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And it, it, it is tough with these guys who are so good when they're tired that unless you're really watching for for what their weaknesses are, it might be something you can't even really see with the naked eye. And it would be great to know if he lost five miles an hour on his forehand or something, or maybe his, his backhand slices had a little bit less spin. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't placing his serves as well. Uh, it would be great to know that, and, and Hawkeye data would be lovely to have for this and many other purposes but it, it i did get that impression that that he didn't really have the chances even though it was relatively close on paper he did look to be the more tired of the two uh, one factor you mentioned that one of your comments was relevant to hard courts on the commentary they said that the the tour final surface this year was medium slow and they said in the recently it had been medium medium or something like that <laughs> i always take these things with a with a giant grain of salt and they often don't tally with with my analyses which I mean, it could mean either one is wrong but it, it means it's it, it's not super clear cut what we know about the surfaces but even though we think we have thought over the years of team as a clay court guy i get the sense that he would benefit more from the opportunity to be more aggressive on a faster surface and if if this had been on a 10 percent faster surface which certainly would have been a plausible thing to have on an indoor hard court do you think that would have benefited team and maybe tip the scales yeah, yeah possibly. possibly um uh, I, I i was curious what ace percentage would say about those the, the claim of the speed of court and he was definitely hitting more aces slightly more aces in his matches this year so at least from his matches it, it didn't seem like he, he was experiencing them as that much slower but um i mean he's done well on slower hard courts too and he's he's kind of rounded out well and Medvedev did serve pretty big in the in the final uh, and actually all week so uh, it, it cuts both ways but it definitely easier to hit through Medvedev on a faster court you mentioned his the, the serving I mean, you refer to the ace percentage approach that I've taken in measuring uh, measuring court speed which I, sh I should run those for for 2020. I don't have those numbers for this year. I am always I'm skeptical of what my own method spits out for the tour finals because it, it some of the results in the past have been a little iffy. Partly because it's so few matches for one tournament, so one or two outliers can mess with the overall numbers. But but also because it's a tournament where only the best players are are showing up. So I'm not sure you can really compare apples to apples. All of which is to say I I really don't know what we're dealing with with the court speed. Uh, but I'm curious what you think about Medvedev's serve. We don't really talk about him as a as a big server with the guys who are known for that skill, but especially as the match was progressing, he, he had a few. I don't know why I always looked at the 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 serve speed indicator on on these particular serves, but he hit several wide serves. I think mostly from the ad side that clocked at 127, which is really fast for an ad court serve. They looked really flat and for some reason it looked like he was he was making contact pretty far in front of his body which he probably wasn't it was probably just the camera angle or something but it, all of which is to say it, it seemed like he was he was hitting his serves heavier than the the serve speed would would normally indicate maybe that's just in contrast with with team who can 
maybe leans more towards towards spinning serves, even hard ones. But do you think there's something to that that maybe Medvedev gets more bang for his buck um, on on big serves than other players who are hitting it the same miles per hour? That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> that's a really subtle thing to pick up on. Um, well, and it might be so subtle that it's non-existent and or wrong. So yeah, and I mean, this could come back to this question of is he really smart with with where he hits him when so he gets more because he knows that it's where the guy isn't leaning or that he's noticed a subtle change in the in the base position. Um, I, I I did look at just sort of his serve stats generally, which which isn't exactly answering the question, but he's managed this season. Even though I said he, he stumbled earlier in the year, maybe with his great run at the end in Paris and London, he raised his percentage of serves in by a percentage point and also raised his percentage of first serve points won by three points off of a great 2019. This is all from tennisabstract.com, of course. Uh, and his hold percentage on the stats leaderboard is looks like seventh. Um which is not incredible, like it's behind Tsitsipas, for instance, and Berrettini, but it's um, it's up three points from last year as well. So maybe he's figured some some things out. And if you look at his first serve win percentage in his runs in Paris and London, which were all against top players, I mean, even the non-top 10 players he beat in Paris are really good players. Um, just really high first serve win percentage. So maybe something about indoors agrees with him, even if it wasn't such a fast surface. Uh, he does have maybe a slightly unusual toss in motion, which could could benefit from it. But maybe he's also just actually improved his serve, including in the way you described. Yeah, that's the, that's the question. And another thing that we would be really happy to have Hawkeye data for to know whether it is increasing the the speed or or more precise locations or as I think you hinted at in something you said, it could be something more tactical that he's better at reading where opponents are leaning. And one of the reasons that I want to do this episode and specifically talking about Medvedev is an email exchange we had earlier this week. We were talking about something entirely different. And I, I made a sort of throwaway comment that I thought Sabatini, Gabriela Sabatini and Conchita Martinez, both of whom I've been watching a lot of lately were, were tactically perfect players. I mean, they didn't have huge games or any, anything close. I mean, they were both very traditional grinders a lot of the time. But both both of them developed serve and volley skills. They developed more aggressive games. They ended up winning on winning a lot on surfaces other than clay. And I referred to them as, as tactically perfect or tactically almost perfect. And, and you came back and said you thought that the the players who are are close to tactically perfect now are Medvedev and Rublev. And you also raised the question of of how on earth we quantify tactical perfection, which still has me scratching my head. I have no idea how we quantify tactical (laughs) perfection, but, but I'm curious what, what sorts of things make you think of, of Medvedev in that context? I've watched way too much tennis in my life relative to what, what what else maybe I could have done with my time, but it, it has brought me joy. And please do not remind me. <laughs> how, however much tennis you've watched, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm equal or more, and I don't like thinking about what else I could have done with that time. It's unhealthy. All I all I can explain from from what that feels like watching a Medvedev match is every time he hits a shot, it not every time. More often than most players I watch, 
almost every player I watch. And the big exception, the one, of course, I should have named, but can take for granted after all these decades, is Nadal. Um, and, and maybe Djokovic. Is, oh, that was, given what, what options he had and where he was in the point, that was the perfect shot to hit. Or... I hadn't even thought of that shot, but that was even better than what was in my mind because I think I'm always somewhat anticipating like what I think they should do. So this is like Carl's version of tactics. So who the hell knows? Um, so you know, like if if Medvedev is out of position in the backhand corner, I think better than most players, he will deliberately slow down the shot and add more depth in a way that's slower. So that he can get back in position and neutralize it, and whereas some players would like go for a very aggressive shot. And as I was thinking about my comment leading up to this episode, knowing we we're going to discuss it, I then question everything because so much of that is what he can do, and a lot he just has a lot of options, and a lot of players don't. And some of those options are because of his speed, and some are because of his his skill with the racket. Uh, and then there's also the question of tactics over the course of a match and do you set up a certain pattern or do you tire out your opponent early because that'll give you an advantage later because you're you're the fitter player so i don't know but that that's my feeling watching a medvedev rally or a nadal rally or medvedev versus nadal rally as we saw a few days ago it's interesting that you mentioned you mentioned sort of the counter argument which is these guys we're talking about now at, at least medvedev nadal Djokovic, maybe not Rublev so much, but those those first three guys, we talk them about them as being tactically very, very smart, but partly because they definitely are, but partly because we see them hit all these different shots. They are able to do virtually everything you can imagine on the tennis court. But I think back to some of the conversations we had about tactics on this show in the past, and one episode in particular, um, where I think we're, I forget what my faux clever name was, but something about what we're talking about when we talk about tactics. Uh, one thing we've come back to a lot is that the, the, the serve bots are, are also tactically brilliant. And the name that always comes to mind is Milos Ronic. And he does not fit that mold at all. So is, is there a way to reconcile this idea that Medvedev is tactically brilliant and Milos Ronic is also tactically brilliant? Yeah, I think it has something to do, like, if you were think if you had all the numbers before you, like a beautiful quantitative buffet, and you could, you could see what the win probability was given the players, their position, the ball, everything else, the win probability for the point as the ball comes to Raonic or Medvedev, and then you see what their options are, do they choose one that is close to maximizing their win probability for the point, given given where they stood and what their options are for changing it. Um, so, for instance, Raonic will often go for these really aggressive backhands down the line, and he misses a ton of them. But when he makes them, they're often winners, and they're often from a position in the point that he wasn't happy to be in and was probably going to lose anyway. And it shortens the point and everything else. So I think it's something like that, but... We, we're a long way, even if we had all the data that's out there, we're a long way from being able to to model that accurately enough, especially in terms of what, what are their actual options given their their abilities and position. Yeah, that's the, that's the tricky thing. And yeah, it, this is not a fully formed thought, so you might have to tell me I'm wrong or, or fill in the gaps for me. But 
I'm thinking about these long rallies that Medvedev gets into, and for some reason, the one thing that always sticks in my mind with with him is I think it was a match against Gilles Simon last summer at at Queens Club. Again, I might have this stuff wrong, but they they played some just outrageously long rallies, and we're talking about like forty shot rallies on grass, and. It's unfair to say that he always plays really long rallies. I don't know what his average rally lengths are. It's probably not extremely long, but you do you do notice these these thirty shot rallies more with Medvedev than others. And is that is that a sign of tactical smarts? A sign of the opposite? None of the above? Because it seems like if if you're doing the right thing with every shot you hit, and you're still in a rally for thirty shots. I mean, the other guy must be doing a lot of things right, or maybe you're not tactically that smart. Or I guess maybe tactically you're deciding, I can sit this one out, I don't need to be tactically perfect right now because I'll have an opportunity to do something smart three to five to 20 shots down the line. Does that make any sense? Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, I think Simone is is maybe the best example of what we're talking about of anyone, and I just wasn't thinking of him because... He hasn't been a top-ranked player lately, but... He's still top in our hearts. Yeah, but I mean, think of him in his top 10 days and, and what got him there and, and what he was renowned for. But, you know, I think um, he would so often hit the shot that was, like, just annoying enough to neutralize the rally. Um, and it won him a lot of money and a lot of matches without some of the more typical weapons, including not a great forehand. And there's that famous match he played against Djokovic in Australia where Djokovic hit over 100 unforced errors, mm-hmm. which is, has got to be the one of the most widely misunderstood stats ever. In, <laughs> yes. <laughs> in, in a long match against someone like Simone, you're going to hit a lot of unforced errors. And I mean, he won, didn't he? Yeah, he won. Okay. And unforced errors per shot was was not maybe that that uh, outlandish um and he won the tournament um yeah so that match against simone 46 10 plus shot rallies on grass in a three-set match and simone won 30 of the 46 so maybe simone out out thought him outlasted him um yeah i don't know i mean i think that medvedev when he is really aggressive suffers a bit from how flat his shots are and does hit more unforced errors than some other guys, even though he is so precise, like Del Potro with the flat shots. Um, and so he, maybe he has a little Andy Murray in him, like he just doesn't have a high tolerance for errors, but it, it is fun to watch when he's when he's more aggressive. And sometimes even on the 25th shot of a rally, he suddenly goes for broke. Um, I don't know if that's tactically smart, but it's unpredictable, which is part of being tactically smart. Yeah, that is definitely true, and that's an, that's yet another factor to to think about modeling if we if we had all the necessary data. And it's actually one of the first things I I tried to look at when I had a little bit of match charting data was looking. At, I think it was something that I talked about in the the, the talk I gave at Sloan several years ago, um, looking at which players are most predictable from certain parts of the court. And the analysis I did then was nothing like the complexity of what we're talking about here, but. But it is a factor. I mean, and, and even if you can get players a little bit off balance, then in in a matchup like the ones we're talking about here, it can be a huge advantage. I just want to give one specific plug for Medvedev that I think doesn't apply as much to some of the other players we've talked about. I think he's, and I'm not sure exactly yet how to state this, but I think he's best on tour at moving backwards, which means he can move forward freely because he knows he can move backward, which means... He gives himself options really far 
later into shots than than most players do. And what I mean is he'll move into the net, but then move back to hit a short ground stroke, or he'll move forward in the court to be aggressive, but then gets a deep ball and moves back really well. And so he's always, um, he's. it looks to me like he's giving himself options later uh, than other players do, which is important for having good tactics is having good options. Yeah, that's interesting. I have not noticed that or or thought about it, but I can certainly see the value in something like that. I wonder how much of that is because of his flexibility in con- in in contact point, because he he seems mm. to be able to hit good ground strokes from a wide variety of contact points. One piece of evidence for that is how well he handled all of those slices from team in the tour finals final. Uh, because it can't be comfortable for a guy who's six six to get down for those shots one after the other, and he did not always slice back. He sliced back some and was fine doing it, but he hit plenty of of flat or topspin backhands from uh, from that lower position. And if you do have a giant hitting zone, which he seems to have, then you don't ha- maybe you don't have to move as far back as other players do. To and and that's something we we've always seen with Roger Federer that he can just own the baseline because if, if you hit it at his feet like he'll hit a half volley from the baseline and other players try to do that sometimes they'll they'll hit a highlight reel shot doing it but i'm not sure anyone is as good at as as federer is at keeping himself in a rally hitting just a, a half volley off his toes from the baseline and that gives him the sort of flexibility that that I think you're describing Medvedev has as well, even if they, the end result in how they construct points is going to be drastically different. Yeah. So I was starting to get a little itchy when we started talking about Gilles Simone, because it's one, one letter away from talking about Simona and we've neglected both Simona and the entire uh, WTA for this whole episode, which was kind of by design because there hasn't been much women's tennis this fall and the, the tour finals give us so much material. So maybe, maybe it will take fewer than 11 months to come back with the next episode with all this material we've left on the table uh, from the, the whole women's tour and, you know, I mean, all sorts of other stuff as well. But um, thanks everyone for listening. I should have plugged this in the beginning, but part of the reason we were talking today is we're, we're starting another unrelated podcast uh, in this case on the coronavirus called dangerous exponents. And, um, if you listen to us talk about tennis for this long, maybe you'll like ta- hearing us talk about that too. That By the time you hear this, that will probably be released. You can find out about that at our various Twitter and other accounts. So um, at Tennis Abstract for me and at Carl Bialik for, for Carl. Uh, so let's call that a day for us for episode 84. Thanks everyone for listening. And Carl, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And whether it is one week, three weeks, or... 30 weeks from now, uh, we hope to see you all next time. Bye-bye.